I'm Pastor Daryl Curtis, and you're listening to my 59th sermon on the biblical design of gender, in which my point is that the Holy Spirit is our helper, but he does not make our decisions for us. Our conduct is still our own decision. The following is a presentation of the Family Life Baptist Church in Lansing, Michigan. For more audio and video content, please visit FamilyLifeBC.com. Good morning on this 16th day of the month of January in the year of uh, 2011. And for those of you that... uh, celebrating Martin Luther King Day, we certainly want to uh, uh, celebrate along with you, although Martin Luther King is not our topic for today. Our topic for this morning is our 59th part of our sermon series on the biblical design of gender, and our text is in the book of Proverbs, uh, chapter 7, verse 24 through 27, and in it the Bible says this, now therefore, Listen to me, my children. Pay attention to the words of my mouth. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her path. For she has cast down many wounded, and all who were slain by her were strong men. Her house is the way to hell, descending to the chambers of death. Proverbs chapter 7, verse 24 through 27. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word and let us bow our heads in a word of prayer. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you afresh for the total sufficiency of Jesus Christ, for the perfect teaching ministry of your blessed Holy Spirit, and for his ability to explain your word. So, Lord, give us the words to say and let us say them with liberty, with clarity, and with boldness, and that somebody listening might believe the report. Thanking you in advance for all that you are going to do in the strong and perfect name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Now, thank you very much for coming to hear this message for this morning. And before we begin this, our next lesson, let us reiterate our reason for attending church. We attend church to obtain the mind of Christ, meaning to have the Bible illuminated in our mind so that we can clearly understand the principles that Jesus taught and base our daily personal decisions on those principles. We come to church because we want to be obedient to the Bible, which is the doctrine of Jesus Christ in an informed, insightful, and intelligent manner. And our takeaway point in this series on the biblical design of gender is that God has designed man as the cooperative coalition of husband and wife so that man can successfully achieve the objective that God has given us to exercise dominion over the earth, developing wisdom and knowledge in preparation for further responsibility in our eternal life. Now, in our last lesson, we chronicled the inauguration of the reign of King Solomon, who wanted to be a diplomat, a man of wisdom and persuasion, rather than being a man of military force, as was his father David. So Solomon applied to God in 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 6-9, through 9, and Solomon said, You have shown great mercy to your servant David my father, 
because he walked before you in truth, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart with you. You have continued this great kindness for him, and you have given him a son to sit on his throne, as it is this day. Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king instead of my father David, but I am a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to be numbered or counted. Therefore, give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? And God responded positively in 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 10 through 14. The speech pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. Then God said to him, Because you have asked this thing and have not asked long life for yourself, nor asked riches for yourself, nor asked the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern justice, behold, I have done according to your words. See, I have given you a wise and understanding heart, so that there has not been anyone like you before you, nor shall any like you arise after you. And I have also given you what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that there shall not be anyone like you among the kings, all your days. So if you walk in my ways to keep my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. And Solomon demonstrated his God-given ability to make wise decisions to Israel when he had to decide the identity of the parent of a child over which two women were both claiming maternity. And when Solomon offered to physically divide the child between the two women, the woman that actually bore the child asked for mercy for the child. The woman that was trying to steal the child was angry about the death of her own child, and so she was sanguine about Solomon's solution to kill the living child. And from the women's reaction, Solomon was able to ascertain that the woman that wanted mercy for the child was his true mother. And all Israel was impressed with Solomon for his decision-making ability and followed his leadership as Solomon worked on his major project, that being building the temple for the worship of God. Solomon's father David had amassed a great deal of, of the precious metal needed to build the temple, and then Solomon hired the king of Tyre to provide the master craftsman and aromatic cedar timber from the forest of Lebanon that Solomon would need to complete his task. Solomon also needed workers, and 2 Chronicles 2, 17 and 18 records that there were 153,600 aliens in the land of Israel. And Solomon made 70,000 of them bearers of burden, 80,000 stonecutters in the mountain, and 3,600 overseers to make the people work. So with labor and raw materials, Solomon began building. 1 Kings 6 and 2 records that the temple Solomon built for the Lord was 90 feet long, 30 feet wide, and 45 feet high. Second Chronicles 3 records that the porch in front of the temple was 30 feet across and 30 feet high. Solomon covered the inside of the temple with pure gold. 
The most holy place was 30 feet long and 30 feet wide, covered inside with 23 tons of fine gold. Solomon decorated the inside of the most holy place with a pair of large carved cherubim covered with gold. The total length of the cherubim's wings was 30 feet. One of the cherub's wings touched the wall, the other wing touched the tip of the wingtip of the other cherub, and the second cherub's wingtip touched the other wall. And the temple that Solomon built for God was a magnificent glittering golden structure. And God was pleased with the work. Solomon's prayer dedicating the temple is recorded in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 22 through 30. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven. And he said, Lord God of Israel, there is no God in heaven above or on earth below like you who keep your covenant and mercy with your servants who walk before you with all their heart. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you, how much less this temple which I have built. Yet regard the prayer of your servant and his supplication, O Lord my God, and listen to the cry and the prayer which your servant is praying before you today, that your eyes may be open toward this temple night and day, toward the place of which you said my name shall be there, that you may hear the prayer which your servant makes toward this place. And may you hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Here in heaven, your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. Now Solomon, in his wisdom, focused on obtaining forgiveness from God. Solomon recognized that the forces of sin are stronger than the will of man, and that it is only by aligning ourselves with God that we can either avoid sin or recover from its effects when we fall prey to it. Solomon goes on to say in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 46 through 52, when they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you become angry with them and deliver them to the enemy, and they take them captives in the land of the enemy far or near, yet when they come to themselves of the land where, where they were carried captives and repent, and make supplication to you in the land of those who took them captive, saying, We have sinned and done wrong, we have committed wickedness. And when they return to you with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies who led them away captive, and pray to you toward their land which you gave to their fathers, the city which you have chosen, and the temple I have built for your name, then hear in heaven your dwelling place their prayer and their supplication and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you and all their transgressions which they have transgressed against you and grant them compassion before those who took them captive that they may have compassion on them that your eyes may be open to the supplication of your servant and the supplication of your people Israel to listen to them whenever they call to you. And in this prayer, 
Solomon teaches us that we should always call on God that he may grant us repentance of our sin. That we will sin is inevitable because of our sin nature, as Paul explains to us in Romans chapter 7, verse 18 through 23. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will to do good is present with me, but how to perform what is good, I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Verse 20 says, now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. And our members are our problem. I can remember when I first went to work for the telephone company, the telephone company sent me to technical training in Grand Rapids and put me up in a hotel Monday through Friday for 16 weeks. Now, my wedding day was the Saturday before I started technical training. I spent that Saturday and Sunday with my new wife, and then on Monday morning, I left our apartment to go to Grand Rapids, not to see my wife again until the next Friday. She couldn't come with me, because she was attending college at Michigan State. Of course, I was not the only one in Grand Rapids without my wife. There were about 12 guys in the class, six from Lansing, and if I'm not mistaken, five of us Lansing guys had, had wives at home in Lansing while we stayed in Grand Rapids. And we were away from our wives for 16 weeks. And about the third week, I heard some of the fellows talking about Critical Thursday. Being unfamiliar with the term, I asked about it. One of the guys said, Thursday is critical because it is the day when your desire to have sex may override your fear of the consequences of getting caught. Six strong, healthy, normal, young married men away from their young wives staying in hotel rooms with the expense money given to them by the telephone company, had to deal with the concept of critical Thursday. Romans chapter 7, verse 22 and 23 reminds us, For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. So the solution to the problem of Critical Thursday is that I have to delight in the law of God and resist the law of my members. Without the commandment of Deuteronomy 5.18, which says, you shall not commit adultery, most men would not restrain themselves. Remember David on the roof? He had seven wives available to him, none of whom were 60 miles away, and he still sinned. And since sin is always with us, 
the wise Solomon knew that the greatest need of the Israelites, himself included, was the need for forgiveness, which is that for which Solomon asked God. And God responded in part in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 12 through 14. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up heaven and there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, pray and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. And God makes it clear that he warns us via negative circumstances to turn away from our sins. God specifies that drought, insect infestation, and contagious diseases should all be considered warnings and that prayer, humility, and seeking God should be our proper responses to being warned. Now, it is important for us to realize that we live in a sinful society, by which I mean that many things that are seen as normal by most people in the society are really sinful. Our society considers abortion, divorce, and promiscuity normal and acceptable. And because of the sinfulness of our society, it is of the utmost importance that we stay close to God because of our personal propensity for sin. And it is difficult for many of us to even acknowledge our own sin because our positive self-image is based upon our perception of ourselves being right. We justify our sin as permissible because everyone is doing it. And as adults, our first reaction to being challenged that we have sinned is to justify ourselves. But Solomon warns us against this type of thinking with an example that he gives, beginning in Proverbs chapter 7, verse 6 through 9, which says, For at the window of my house, I looked through my lattice, and I saw among the simple, I perceived among the youths, a young man devoid of understanding. Passing along the street near her corner, and he took the path to her house, in the twilight, in the evening, in the black and dark night. Now Solomon begins by saying that the sinful man, that the man on his way to his sinful rendezvous lacked understanding. The young man should have recognized, because of the historical example of David and Bathsheba, that adultery brings a worse reaction than even stealing. Proverbs 6, 33 explains, people do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy himself when he is starving. Yet when he is found, he must restore sevenfold. He may have to give up all his substance of his house. Whoever commits adultery with a woman lacks understanding. He who does so destroys his own soul. Wounds and dishonor he will get, and his reproach will not be wiped away. And of course, the avoidance of adultery is the reason for marriage. 
1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 3 through 5 says, Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband doesn't have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except with consent for a time, that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer, and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But the young fool is only half of the sinful couple. Proverbs chapter 7, verse 10 through 14 introduces the other half. And there a woman met him with the attire of a harlot and a crafty heart. She was loud and rebellious. Her feet would not stay at home. At times she was outside at times in the open square, lurking at every corner. So she caught him and kissed him. With an impudent face, she said to him, I have peace offerings with me. Today I have paid my vows. Now the peace offering is the sacrificial burning of plant material that gives off a sweet smelling aroma. The idea of a peace offering is to make peace with God by giving him a sweet-smelling offering that he can enjoy. So the woman went to church, paid her tithe, and then gave a peace offering to God with the intention of buying God off, that God might wink at the sin she is planning to commit. The woman then continues speaking in Proverbs 7:15 through 20, So I came out to meet you, diligently to seek your face, and I have found you. I have spread my bed with tapestry, colored coverings of Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love until morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. For my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He has taken a bag of money with him and will come home on the appointed day. So the woman's husband is not home and is not scheduled to be home soon. The woman has been to church and thinks she's paid God off. In other words, she feels justified in the sin that she is committing. Since her husband is not at home, she considers promiscuity normal and acceptable. So this episode must be occurring on a Thursday. Proverbs 30 and 20 tells us, this is the way of the adulterous woman. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I have done no wickedness. Yes, this must be happening on a Thursday because Proverbs 27 and 21 records, with her enticing, enticing speech, she caused him to yield. With her flattering lips, she seduced him. And the young fool is about to make the wrong critical Thursday decision. Proverbs 7, 22 and 23 says, Immediately he went after her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a fool to the correction of the stocks till an arrow struck his liver. As a bird hastens to the snare, he did not know it would cost his life. And it was not her fault that he sinned. And it was not his fault that she sinned. But each of them bore the blame for their own sin. And Solomon gives us his wise conclusion in our text 
Proverbs 7, 24 through 27. Now, therefore, listen to me, my children. Pay attention to the words of my mouth. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For she has cast down many wounded, and all who were slain by her were strong men. Her house is the way to hell, descending to the chambers of death. So, young fellows, when you see the seductress coming for your soul, don't think about the temporary pleasure. Think about the consequences. And she doesn't have to be an adult woman. She might even be a high school girl. Some people start early. But sexual sin does not always consist of a man being seduced by a woman. Marilyn came in to see a counselor. She began, I had a boyfriend two years ago that I can't get over. He was a jerk and I should hate him, but I just can't get over him. I just can't. Well, the counselor said, how old are you? 19, Marilyn replied. And said the counselor, how old were you when you had sex with him? Marilyn looked shocked for a moment. She opened her mouth, then she closed it. Finally, she responded, well, it was the beginning of my senior year, so I was almost 18. The counselor said, so you were 17. Were you a virgin? Yes, said Marilyn, but the counselor cut her off. Marilyn, stop talking. Listen, and let me tell you something. One of the reasons that I recommend that teenage girls not get involved in sex is that the bonding hormones in their brains produce emotions that girls feel very, very intensely. Some of the most intense emotions come when girls or young women lose their virginity. Girls or young women want to have the emotional assurance that the boy or man to whom they lose their virginity loves them. The fact that the man loves them and gives himself for the woman makes their sexual experience meaningful. But in your case, this boy did not love you so your first sexual experience was actually meaningless. Now I know that many girls and young women will tell you that sex is no big deal, but they say that because being promiscuous, they have allowed themselves to be used often. And promiscuous women become crass, meaning crude or unrefined about sex to the point that for them, sex really is no big deal. The more men with whom a woman has sex, the more crass about sex she becomes. But you haven't had sex with that many men, and your extremely intense teenage brain has not yet become crass. You still want sex to be something other than physical exercise, but you gave your virginity away like you were just doing a workout routine. And since the boy did not care about you, your first sexual experience was meaningless. Now, having given your virginity away pointlessly makes you feel bad, makes you feel used, makes you feel like a discarded tissue. And girls and women cope with those feelings by hanging on to the romantic notion that they are in love with the boy or man to whom they gave their virginity. As long as you are in love with him, there's a chance in your mind that something good might happen. 
even if it is only a fantasy in your own mind, and even if you really know that he is not in love with you. Staying in love with a man with whom you've had sex deflects the pain of the fact that you allowed yourself to be used and the sex was pointless. So when you say, I can't get over him, it means you are really saying, although you don't realize it, I gave away my virginity for no good reason. I feel used, embarrassed, and ashamed, but I can't get my virginity back. So you say, oh, I'm still attached to keep the relationship going in your mind and in order to avoid the embarrassment and shame of being used. The counselor stopped and looked intently at Marilyn. Marilyn looked down and then responded, yeah. And the counselor continued, so this preoccupation with your old boyfriend is how you are dealing with embarrassment, shame, and regret. And that is why women should not have sex until they are married. A woman should not have sex until the man has made a public marital commitment to love her, to cherish her, and to be with her to raise a family, and to do all the other things that make sex meaningful. To a man, to any man, sex is just recreation until he makes a public marital commitment to a woman. You were just a pickup game with some guys on the corner. One day, he will commit himself, sign a contract, and get married, and that girl will be his NBA. Now, you can have sex as often as you want and treat your body like a toy with which you can attract men, but you are more than just a body. You are also a soul and a spirit, and letting a man sexually violate your body without meaning violates your soul and spirit. You are hanging on to him because you volunteered to let him violate you and you desperately want that violation to mean something. The counselor stopped talking. Marilyn looked up and said, right. However, the counselor responded, there is a better way to deal with your situation than hanging on to a relationship that is not there. Rather than hanging on, it is better to repent. It is better to just say, I'm ashamed and regretful that I gave myself away, but that was yesterday. I'm not going to repeat stupid behavior like that. And if you're willing to have remorse, take responsibility, and decide to not repeat that sin, I think you'll be better off. The counselor looked at Mary. Well, Marilyn responded, I'm totally willing to say that, but I just, and the counselor cut her off, Marilyn, there is no I just. If you have remorse, regret, and are willing to take responsibility, then just say so to me. Okay, Marilyn began, I regret everything he did to me, and the counselor stopped Marilyn again. No, Marilyn, I don't want you to say it that way. You can't blame that which you did on him. He did not rape you. To try to put the responsibility for that which you did on him keeps you from repenting because only the one that is responsible for a sin can repent of it. You can't move forward as long as you try to make him responsible for your sin. 
So Marilyn, if you really want to repent and avoid repeating this behavior in the future, you have to confess that your decision was your fault, not his fault. True, he could have spared you embarrassment and shame by stepping up to the plate, but you could have spared yourself embarrassment and shame by not having sex with him until he made a marital commitment to you. So you have to recognize that it was not his responsibility that you chose to have sex with him. You made the choice and it's your responsibility. You're not embarrassed and ashamed for what he did. You're embarrassed and ashamed for what you did. The counselor continued, so repeat after me. I'm ashamed of what I did. Marilyn repeated, I'm ashamed of what I did. The counselor continued, I regret what I did. And Marilyn repeated, I regret what I did. And the counselor finished, and I'm not going to repeat that foolish behavior and hurt myself again. And Marilyn repeated, and I'm not going to repeat that foolish behavior and hurt myself again. The counselor looked seriously at Marilyn and then spoke. Now, Marilyn, I'm going to write that down so that you can remember it. Every time you think about him, repeat, I'm ashamed of what I did, I regret what I did, and I'm not going to repeat that foolish behavior and hurt myself again. You hide from your embarrassment, shame, and regret by obsessing about him. So you will have to keep reminding yourself until you get it that this mistake was your fault. But you can repent of your mistake, get over your embarrassment, shame, and regret, and not obsess about it. And the Bible tells us in 1 John 1 and 9, if we confess our sins, Jesus is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Hebrews 13 and 4 tells us, marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. And in Matthew 9, 13, Jesus said, but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And Jesus wants us to repent of our sins rather than be condemned by them. John 3, 16 and 17 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have an everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Ultimately, God rejected Solomon's offering in the temple due to the sin and lack of repentance of Israel. Grain and animal sacrifices have no power to change human spirits. The woman that committed adultery in the episode that we discussed today offered a sacrifice before she did so, but that sacrifice did not stop her. But Jesus Christ offered a sacrifice of his own precious blood as he suffered, bled, and died on the cross of Calvary 
to pay the penalty for our sins. And we understand the enormity of Jesus' sacrifice, the pain and agony that it caused Jesus before he died, and the glory of his resurrection from the dead assures us that there is not only life after death, but that Jesus Christ is the one that will save us in that eternal life from the penalty of our sins. Jesus Christ's sacrifice saves us from the penalty of our sins in that life, and the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives saves us from the power of our sins in this life. As Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27 tells us, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do that, do them. The Holy Spirit is our helper, but he does not make decisions for us. Our conduct is still our own decision. With the help of the Holy Spirit, we have to deny the call of our members of our flesh, even of those that would tempt us, and decide to do that which is right rather than popular or wrong. Despite the temptation, we must walk in God's statutes. Jesus tells us in Matthew 24, 12, and 13, and because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold, but he, endure, he, he who endures to the end shall be saved. So let us endure. Let us yield not to temptation, for yielding is sin. Each victory will help you some other to win. Fight manfully onward, dark passions subdue. Look ever to Jesus because he will carry you through. Ask the Savior to help you, comfort, strengthen, and keep you. Jesus is willing to aid you. Jesus will carry you through. And that is our lesson for today. Let us pray. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you for this lesson and we thank you for the wisdom that you gave Solomon to point out to us our sin nature and to point out our need for association with your spirit and for our constant need for repentance of that which we do. Give us the mind, Lord, that we might understand that we might not be seduced by this sin-sick world into thinking that that which is wrong is actually right simply because everybody else does it. But help us to stand apart and look at your word as our standard and decide to follow your example and do that which you tell us to do. And help us, Lord, to yield not to temptation, but give us the power through the Holy Spirit to look at temptation and to flee because you've made a way of escape that we might be able to bear. And now, Lord, we thank you for all that are in the house today. And we ask you that you would give us traveling mercies as we go down from this place and then bring us back once again at the appointed time. And now, Lord, we thank you for all these things. We thank you for your goodness, for your mercy, and for your grace. And most of all, we thank you for your sacrifice on the cross. 
for rising from the dead on that Sunday. Thank you, Lord, in the wonderful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen and thank God. Thank you for listening. We hope you were blessed by this presentation. For more audio and video content, please visit FamilyLifeBC.com.